Grace to you and peace from God our Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. As we, as we read through the Gospels, we see many instances of Jesus' disciples displaying uh, great weakness and ignorance from time to time. They often fail to think and say and do the, the right stuff at the right time. Uh, for example, uh, children are brought to Jesus that he might bless them. And what do the disciples do? Well, they try to send them away. Jesus has no time for these little ones. Uh, or when they're crossing the Sea of Galilee in their boat, right, and they're caught up in a storm, how do they react? They, they panic in fear, even as Jesus sleeps in the bow of the boat. And what's remarkable as these events transpire and as they unfold is that when the disciples display their weakness or their ignorance, Jesus reveals his grace uh, and his remarkable love and care for them. See, the children are not sent away, but Jesus blesses them. The storm frightens the disciples, but what does Jesus do? He calms it and comforts his disciples. And so today, as we think about the transfiguration of Jesus, we, we see this point made very clearly. Today, we see Jesus transfigured, and as Jesus is transfigured before them, here we see that the disciples, as they see his glory, miss the point. See, before Jesus, no man could see the glory of God and live. That's, that was true even with Moses, right? Uh, we heard about this in the Old Testament reading a few weeks ago. Moses had been up on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God, and toward the end of his time up there, Moses asked, Lord, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before my name the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. You see, man cannot gaze upon the glory of the Lord. And the reason that man can't see the glory of God and the face of God is on account of man's sin. The glory of God radiates from God's holiness, God's power, God's justice, God's perfection. And what is man? We're sinful. We're weak. It would break and destroy our sinful flesh to see God in his unrestrained glory. So God has to tuck Moses away and cover his face to reveal only a glimpse of the back of his glory. But today, we see the transverse happen. Now, as we read the gospel lesson, he shows it. We see the glory of God revealed on the mountain of transfiguration. And here, the glory of God can be seen and beheld by sinful men. Why? Why can these men now do what even Moses could not do? Well, it's because the glory of God is revealed in Jesus, the Savior, the sin-bearer. Peter, James, and John are brought up to the mountain to pray with Jesus. They're permitted to see the Christ, glorified, exalted, in perfect beauty. His face shines like the sun. His clothes beam white and bright. His whole appearance changes to reveal his true divinity. And for that moment, they did not see the poor man from Nazareth. 
They saw Jesus for who he truly is. Until that moment, Jesus' outward appearance was designed to conceal and cover up his divinity because our human eyes would not be able to take it. People would not be able to understand the words that he has to say. They'd flee from him the same way the Israelites fled from Moses when they saw the glory and reflecting off of his face. He took on flesh and he came down from heaven to cover all that up. That's because he came down for the sake of sinners. He came down for poor, miserable people who could never dream of approaching God face to face. Jesus was made flesh so that men could dwell before God in mercy. He's made flesh to die and redeem sinful men. And for that brief moment, Jesus reveals his true glory to these poor sinners. It's a beautiful thing. Of course, in characteristic fashion, they miss the point. We see their weakness on full display as they're brought up on the mountain so that they could pray with Jesus. And even before Christ is transfigured, what do we see happen even in their prayers? Well, in Luke's account, we see that they're woken up from a deep sleep when the glory of Christ shines before them. They come to pray. What do they do? They fall asleep. The whole exercise is repeated at Gethsemane when Jesus has his passion just a little bit later in the Gospels. When Jesus is betrayed, they cannot pray just for a little while. They cannot. They fall asleep. Jesus continually has to come and wake his disciples up. And can't we all relate? We suffer the same weakness that these three men held. Think of our own personal devotional and prayer discipline as we live as the people of God. How long can really any of us sit down and read the Bible until our minds drift off and we're somewhere else? Perhaps this has happened where you begin to pray and you start praying only to forget that you were praying after a minute or two and then you drift off onto some other thought or, or maybe the most pervasive thing that we have in our society right now is that we have our time where we attempt to read the Bible, have prayer time, have devotion, meditate on the scriptures only for our eyes to unconsciously drift to the nearest device, the, the screen, the TV that we unconsciously always have on or the computer screen that we have in front of us to have that phone just drift up before our eyes and all of a sudden we're doing something completely different all the prayer is interrupted all the meditation is broken all the reading and study and personal devotion slides off to the side and we forget what we were doing this weakness that we deceive see happen in these disciples it's not like it's actively malevolent they don't fall asleep because they hate praying they don't fall asleep because they despise jesus they're falling asleep because they're weak they have a fallen flesh and their flesh will always drive them away from those things that help them the most and that's what happens and what makes happen next so wonderful here we see three men with sinful flesh, with a poor, weak heart, a poor, weak mind, being blessed to see the glory of Christ. That which Moses was not permitted to look upon, these men could see with unobstructed eyes. 
They could gaze upon the face of God and the glory of his Christ. Moses and Elijah were there too. Here we see the two great prophets of the Old Testament, the one who delivered the law from Mount Sinai, the one who conquered the prophets of Baal. And what are these two men doing? They're talking to Jesus. How much these men waited for this day. How much anticipation that they have in their life and in their ministry and their calling as the prophets of God to finally get to see the Christ. Both Moses and Elijah had their hope firmly rooted in the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior. And they too had sinful fleshes that they needed to contend with. Moses was not permitted to enter into the promised land because in his exasperation with the whining Israelites, he did not obey God. He struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And Elijah, after his great victory at Mount Carmel, where he humiliated the prophets of Baal, put them to death, along with humiliating Queen Jezebel, had to flee for his life. And he prayed in the wilderness that God would take him out of this miserable world, that he would just be left alone to die. Here we have men who are counted as the strongest as the boldest, as the bravest servants of God. Yet in the end, they were overcome. They faltered. They grew weary of this world. They lost their patience. And they had to enter into heaven with humility. And so they too longed to see their Savior. They spent their entire lives hoping to see Jesus' face. And only now they're permitted to see him face to face. Of course, Peter doesn't see it this way. Peter doesn't see this as a moment of pure weakness being blessed with the mercy of God. No, Peter, he wants to preserve this moment of glory. He wants to keep Moses and Elijah up there on the mountain with him and Jesus. So he says, hey, I'll build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, Jesus. And here, what do we see? Peter misses the point wasn't seeing that Moses and Elijah, they're speaking to Jesus about something very particular. They're not talking about how good it is that they're there on the mountain. It is good. It is a blessing. But no, once again, we see in Luke, Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They could not stay on the mountain. That's not what they were hoping for, to sit on the mountain in comfort and joy and glory. Jesus is revealing his glory, yet his heart is set on a different glory. His heart is set to do something else. His face is focused on his cross. Peter wanted the glory and none of the cross. And you see, right before they come up to the mountain, this whole exercise plays out. See, in the verses leading up to our gospel, we see Peter confess Jesus to be the Christ. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus blesses Peter for his great confession. He says, on this confession that you make before me, I'm going to build my church. But right after this, Jesus teaches Peter what it means to be the Christ. As he says, from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. 
And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, Peter misses the point. He boldly confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, but then he could not fathom the Son of God suffering on a cross. He wanted all the glory with none of the suffering. He wanted the beautiful Jesus on the mountain peak, but nothing of the agony of Jesus on Golgotha. Isn't that kind of how we are? We want the glory, but not the cross. People often have an image of life where if we just get to this certain point, we won't have any more of the problems. If I just do that, then everything will be great, right? And so we create a bunch of scenarios in our minds where things will be perfect, comfortable, joyful, easy. I just got to hit that magic number in my bank account and then I can retire have the easy life. If I just finish my education, then I'll finally get to start my life and get the ball rolling. If I just get this new guy voted in the office, then everything in our society will fall into place. If we just do this, if we just do that, then all of our problems, they'll just dissolve away, end our suffering, make our lives perfect. And this is vain and naive. Because we can never truly be free from the troubles in this life, they will always come and they will always hurt. And so people want to project this sort of thing on their Christian faith. They, they think that if I'm a Christian, maybe I'll be free from trouble. Maybe I'll be free from sorrow. Maybe I won't mess up so much. That's never the case. Many think that if I have a stronger faith, then I won't be sad anymore. If I have a stronger faith, I won't have this trouble or that trouble. If I have a stronger faith, I won't be tempted as much or I won't have as much trouble in my head or I won't have as many mistakes in my relationships. I'll become the perfect spouse. I'll become the perfect parent. I'll become that perfect friend. I'll have all the answers. And it's never the case. While we find a great help for all things in life, in our faith, in the scriptures, and the wisdom of God, often those things that help also entail the burdens of a cross. And that's why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, being a Christian does not get a person what they want in life. It does not promise instant answers and immediate relief. No, it means that we follow after Jesus. It means that we follow him through the cross and into the grave. It means that in this world we will have sorrow. It means that we will be tempted. It means that we will love and suffer for it. Think about that in terms of marriage. See, the mountain of transfiguration, it's like the honeymoon. No one ever wants the honeymoon to end. It does, though. And what usually follows after the honeymoon is hard. 
It's a life of self-denial, service, humility, humbling yourself so that you can forgive this person God has given you to love. And the end, it ends with death. Yet every moment in between is precious and beautiful. The difficulty does not discount the goodness. No. Peter does not want to come down from the mountain. He does not want to see Jesus suffer and die in Jerusalem. Yet what happens in Jerusalem will be the most wonderful thing that ever happens for Peter. When Christ comes down from the mountain and takes up his cross, he does so to save sinners. And that's what Peter, James, and John need. They do not need to sit up on that mountain with Moses and Elijah and Jesus for all the rest of their days. They need the forgiveness of sins. They need their sinful flesh to be brought to an end as Jesus bears all sins in his perfect flesh unto death. They need the atonement of Jesus Christ. And that's what the cross does for them. The cross cannot be denied. The cross cannot be avoided. It's necessary for salvation. And even so, we too, while we don't bear the cross, we do have crosses in this life. We employ a great deal of effort in this life just to avoid, push off, or forget suffering, pain, sadness, any discomfort, really, that can enter into the picture. We spend much of our lives avoiding or numbing ourselves to these things. Yet, if we are to wrestle against our flesh, we have to consider ourselves children of God. And as we do so, we must acknowledge our sins. We must see that these things are unavoidable. Jesus says as much. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. See, the cross of Christ is our comfort. It's our only hope as we're forced to bear our own crosses in this life. And his cross, our cross, is no longer are a demonstration of God's wrath against sinners. Now, our crosses are made into something different. They're not wrath, they're fatherly care. St. Paul says, We did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you yourselves received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings, the crosses of this present time, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. After describing our imperishable inheritance... St. Peter writes the same thing. He says, in this you rejoice that we have this inheritance with Christ, that we're called children of God. But now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials or crosses, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. See the change in Peter? 
He went from desiring all the glory, wanting to stay on the mountain, sitting in his little shelter with Moses and Elijah and Jesus, with none of the cross, to not being able to comprehend the glory of God without the cross. He sees all the sorrow and all the trials as the hand of God acting in fatherly love to strengthen and preserve us in true enduring faith and what the Christ of Christ does. And that is what faith in Jesus, who suffers the cross to save us from our sins, means. He says that the cross of Jesus causes our hearts to rejoice in inexpressible joy, even in the midst of trials and struggles and suffering and sadness. That joy does not come from a lack of suffering, but it comes in the midst of suffering and sorrow. And as we all bear our crosses and follow after Jesus, we're not promised earthly wealth. We're not promised earthly comforts, which are fleeting, or earthly pleasures, which are gone in an instant. We're promised greater wealth, comfort, and pleasure that comes from the gospel of Jesus. The cause from being made a co-heir with Christ and having an inheritance of our own in heaven. If the assurance that God loves you as a father loves his dear son. As Jesus is glorified on the mountain, the father speaks. He was still speaking, as the text says, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God the father says he's pleased with his son. That son whose heart is set to go down to Jerusalem so that he might suffer and die for sinners. That son who will, for the joy set before him, will endure his cross, despising the shame to be seated at the right hand of the Father. That son who will abandon his own glory so that we might be glorified with him. That son is the one who pleases the Father. And in him, you become pleasing to God. It says in Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So if we are sons of God, we can do all things. We can bear all things. We can endure all things. We can follow Christ through the cross into glory. We have a good example of that before us. This week, a dear member of our congregation died. Uh, Ginger Scheidler was called to glory. Uh, And Ginger was a self-described people person. She also cared deeply about other people. I mean, many of you probably at one point in time had a random phone call from Ginger just to see how you were doing. Uh, She loved animals. She loved people. She loved children. She loved. But as her health and hearing deteriorated, she was forced to more and more isolation. She couldn't hear over the phone anymore. The phone calls went away. She lost her mobility and was no longer able to walk. And even for those last months of her life, she wasn't even taken out of bed. This was very hard for her. She struggled desperately with loneliness, uncertainty. She missed church. She missed singing hymns with other people. She missed being able to talk to you. And COVID made this oscillation even worse. Yet in the midst of it all, she had a big sign on her wall. It said, with God, 
all things are possible. This is from Matthew 19, and that's when the disciples asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This was her focus. In all things, it would have been very easy for Ginger to sit and stew on everything, everything she had lost in her life, all the isolation and loneliness she experienced. She could have stewed on, why is my hearing going away? Why do they keep me locked in this room all day long? She could have sat there and succumbed to her suffering and misery, but she didn't. She looked to this promise from Jesus, who makes the impossible possible, and she remembered her salvation, and it gave her joy in the midst of her suffering. As she bore her cross, she bore it with patience and hope and comfort. She kept her hymnal and her Bible near to her. She said that people thought she was weird because she kept singing hymns to herself, but that did not matter. She was given more than what she needed to bear her cross because she was given Christ. She followed after Jesus, and she's now passed through the cross into the grave and now to her glory. This is a good example for us. And she was stripped of so much earthly pleasure in this life, she had the gift that could not be taken away. She had the promise and assurance of the gospel of Jesus set before her, and she bore her cross to the end. With this faith, she was able to bear that cross with joy, and so it is with you. As we struggle with sin, as we are tempted, as we face pain, and sickness, and loneliness, and loss, and mourning, as we endure spiritual battles that we face every day, we do so as the children of God who have been clothed in Christ, that Christ who pleased the Father, that Christ who joyfully endured his cross for our sake. And to you, God no longer conceals himself from mankind, but he makes himself known. And in this, he shows our Savior. He comes down from the mountain only to be lifted up for our transgressions. And in Jesus, you have the forgiveness of sins. You have the divine love and favor of your God. You have the assurance of eternal life. You have an inheritance in heaven kept and preserved for you even unto the last day. And so we will pass through this veil of sorrow into everlasting glory. And so... As we yearn for the glory, as we yearn to see Christ as he was at the transfiguration, we see Christ truly by faith as we recall his cross, as we recall his love, as we recall how he set his face to Jerusalem for you. And in that, you can endure. In that, you can live by faith and be carried even to your last day. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we thank you that you revealed Jesus to be your son on the mountain of transfiguration. And we thank you that Jesus did not desire to remain on that mountain forever, but chose to be glorified in a greater way on his cross. As he has blessed us with this salvation, give us the faith to bear our own crosses and to be drawn up to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.
Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise.